0: This is episode 24 with a former coach of the Australian cricket team, John Buchanan. Talking with TK, I'm your host Tristan Cannell. Another great episode ahead. We're going to be doing a little bit different today. We're going to be having a look at a very successful coach in none other than John Buchanan. John's record speaks for speaks for itself. Leading the Aussies through that transition period of the late 90s into the 2000s, his record a world record, 16 consecutive Test match victories, and he's also been involved with the Australian team with three World Cup wins. You know, some people say that he he inherited a really strong team. Yes, that is so. But I think some of his coaching qualities speak for itself. And just speaking to one of my guests coming up, actually, Damian Fleming, he's full of praise for, for guys like John Buchanan. I've also read some great comments from the likes of Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting. And we chat more about that in the episodes. John does share a few stories from both Steve and Ricky, Gives us insights into what it's actually like to coach at the highest level for both Australia and Queensland. It's a very intriguing, intriguing chat because now he actually works for himself as, like I said, the owner and director of Buchanan's Success Coaching. So he's going all around the country, really teaching his methods of coaching from sports and how that actually can now, you know, transcend into also things like business. And he also does a lot of mentoring with coaches, he told me, from guys from you know from the AFL as well. So it's a really great chat and plenty of you know little tips and tricks from John as well. So please bring out your notepad notepad and your pen and you know really enjoy it. Before I get John on, a big thank you to everyone subscribing and leaving me five star reviews on iTunes. My last episode with the preview show. With Mayweather and McGregor was actually my most downloaded show of all time so numbers are actually great the other two episodes just gone by with Bradley Clyde and Andrew and also some great numbers so you know you guys are really helping me out sharing the you know sharing the word and spreading the love so I really want to thank everyone who's shared it on Facebook or emailed it to a friend or told someone about it I really appreciate it. that's the best way for me to grow so please keep doing that. If you want to connect with me, please send me an email at info at talkingwithtk.com. I'd love to hear any feedback that you've got, or please connect with me. I'm on Twitter at TNLFitness, Facebook, I'm at Talking With TK, or Instagram, I'm Tristan Nell. But without further ado, I introduce John Buchanan. All right guys, my special guest is John Buchanan. John is the director and owner of Buchanan's Success Coaching, and he was also the former coach of the Australian cricket team in a period of time which led to a world record 16 consecutive test matches and an astonishing three World Cups. I welcome John Buchanan. John, welcome to Talking with TK, mate.
1: All right, TK. Very good, thank you.
0: Doing great, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on. An absolute privilege. What I want to touch on first as i introduced you know your main you know your main thing right now is Buchanan success and you know after so much success with the australian cricket team you know my question starting is you know why did you leave professional sports and why did you look to target the corporate sector
1: uh well all good questions tk um buchanan success coaching um, uh, really has embryonic beginnings uh, prior to me leaving uh, coaching with the Australian cricket team. And by the way, I should uh, throw in a quick plug. If people want to Google me up, they can go to Buchanan.international. Um, they can sign up for a newsletter there. And if they do that, then they get a little e-book, free e-book, which will uh, give them a, the beginnings of an insight into how I go about what I do now. So mm-hmm. back to your original question. Um, one is I always believe there's a shelf life in coaching. Um, so I was with Queensland for, for five years. Um, the uh, year between my fourth year and fifth year, I, I coached over in Middlesex for a, uh, a stint over there. That was unsuccessful. But at that point in time, I, I really felt that I needed to be doing new things, different things to challenge myself. And in doing that, I believe that it might help me challenge uh, the players that I was with within the Queensland side. But I still believe that I didn't have too much longer to, to stay there. Um, and then fortunately the Australian job came along. Uh, Same thing, um, you know, one of my um, opening lines to the players when we first met, which was November 1999 in Brisbane, uh, prior to the first Test match against Pakistan, was that we were all going on a journey to Everest together, and I didn't know how long that would be. Um, I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I knew we were uh, going to try and do something special. Um, and that's what we set out to achieve now, as I said, in the back of my mind um I knew I wasn't there for twenty years, <laughs> and very few coaches <laughs> these days are are there for that long anyway, but um probably those days we were we were a little bit uh less subject to the it seems the uh, the whims and uh demands and expectations of a whole range of stakeholders which really places coaches, sporting coaches and CEOs in in the corporate world. Under increasing yeah. pressure to remain there in their, in their roles. But, um, in 2005, um, after six years in the job, we lost uh, a series to England, the Ashes. And, um, as I say in many talks I give, uh, Australians can do most things, uh, in life, but we can't lose sport to the ash, to the Ponds. And, uh, and so, uh, straight away after that, after we lost that series, it was time to, you know, change the captain, sack the coach, um, make a few other changes. So I had a short period of time where I had to get myself prepared to go to the board, you know, the Green Australia board, and justify why I should still remain as coach. And um, three, um, I mean, there's a lot of things obviously that were going through in my mind at the time, but um, in the end it, it boiled down to three particular questions that became very relevant for me, not only then, uh, but now and into the future and I think for all people in leadership roles. The first one was, you know, could I still really make a difference? So I had a group of players that I've been with for six years, we'd achieved some pretty pretty special things by that stage. So could I still could I still do that? You know, so it was number one, could I still really make a difference? Second was, um, like all of us, you know, even if we believe we can make a difference, um, do I still have the desire, the passion, the motivation, you know, the the uh, the ticker inside that says, uh, you know, I need to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to get myself ready for the day, and then the day I'll finish at 10 o'clock at night and there are other things to be done, you know, and, and do that day in, month in, year in, you know. So do you still have the desire to do it? And the third was, having lost uh, the Ashes with the team, did I still have the respect of the majority of the players, especially the captain, the vice-captain. So anyway, cutting this long story short and trying to get back to the original question you asked me, um, uh, it was a case that I went to the board having a- answered those questions in the affirmative to myself and then I-, I presented them, what the next 20 months would look like. But that was the shelf life. That was a point where I was exiting out of cricket um, if they gave me that opportunity. And, um, and along that uh, path line, which then took me to eventually May 2007 where I tied at the end of the World Cup, uh, this notion that I really wanted to take all the lessons that I'd learned in sport and life and business and uh, government and academia and take those back in out in mainly into the corporate world uh, mm. through through my passion coaching. So, uh, come hell or high water, whether we won, lost, or whether I got the opportunity to get those last twenty months, I was I was finishing up anyway.
0: Yeah, what is it exactly that you love about coaching, John?
1: Coaching is about people. It's just simply about people and it's about relationships. Um, and uh you know, my my view on coaches is or coaching is that we have a great opportunity to try and help people uh be better than what they currently are. So part of the coaching process is then to try to get people to understand who they are to start with. You know, what's their what's their current benchmark. Where do they sit? Where do they want to go? Um, and sometimes it's, you don't, that old saying or that old, new old saying, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So it's about actually trying to challenge people to dream. Um, you know, we, as children, were great dreams. You know, I had plenty of dreams as a young, young boy growing up in the backyard and knew I, knew I was going to wear the bag of green and do a whole lot of things, play tennis for Australia and uh, probably be a successful, uh, in, in work or, or life. Um, so all those dreams were there, but somewhere along the line at school, uh, the dreaming is taken away from us. And certainly once, you know, you, you go out into the workspace, um, you know, uh, it's, it's time to, as I say, get a real job and don't sit around dreaming all day. Just get out there and, and earn the dollar and earn the crust that, you know, your, your bosses want you to do. So, so for me, it is about trying to take people back into the, their capacity to dream, dream big, you know, where could I possibly be? And therefore the coaching um, really starts from there. So how do we begin to chase that down? And and so in my work these days, that's what I talk about. I talk about what's your Everest as an individual, as a leader and as a team. What's your Everest? What does it look like? If you get a handle on that, then um, let's um, begin to start that journey.
0: Yeah, John, just taking you back quickly to when you mentioned about the board hitting you up about your job after you lost a series to England. In terms of the emotion of actually, you know, having achieved so much and then having your bosses try to make you say, well, why should you keep your job? How long did it take you to, you know, put a, put aside those emotions and get planning on, on the attack ahead? Yeah,
1: look, um, I thought... Um what I would need would be four to six months to, you know, get away from it, um, you know, really reflect on it, um, be quite objective about trying to make the right decision. But I in hindsight fortunately, uh we had a or or cricket Australia were to embark on a tournament against the World Eleven, which meant there was only um, uh, about five or six weeks by the time that we came back from England to the start of that campaign. So what it forced me to do was not sit around and reflect and go backwards and forwards. It actually forced me to, to look very carefully at what I had done, who I, who I am, uh, had I lived my philosophy and values. And as I said, um, could I still make a difference? Um, did I really want to and have the motivation to continue on and did I have the respect of the player? So uh, I think I was fortunate in that regard that it only took me, you know, a couple of weeks before I had to go to the board and, and spell it out to them.
0: Yeah. How hard was it originally, though, back in, you know, when you took over back in 99? And, you know, you, you walk into a start-started team. You've got Steve War as a new captain as well, so there's a bit of a transition going on across the board as well. How hard was it to walk into something where there was just so much already established in the team?
1: Um, well, look, by then I'd, I'd obviously had some credentials of coaching... Under, under my belt, which was five years with Queensland, and we've been pretty successful there, uh, albeit that, as I said, I had one year or one season unsuccessfully with Middlesex, although that taught me a heck of a lot, even in that uh, six months while I was there and, and the ups and downs of dealing with uh, different people, different cultures, and, and coming into a, a, a new culture, albeit that it said, you know, we're very supportive of you, but... Obviously, going into a, a new team, a new environment, there will always be resistance. There will always be resistance. There will be some who are quite in your corner, and then there's a heck of a lot who are unsure of where you stand. Yeah. So um, I probably found it more difficult in my first meetings with the Queensland team in 94, 95, because I had no coaching background, okay. uh, no formalised coaching
0: background. And Alan no Porter supporters. was there too, right? So. Alan
1: Porter was sitting there, and Ian Healy was sitting there, and Craig Durrant was sitting there. Um, and a whole series of uh, Queensland sort of stalwarts were there plus a group of young guys. So I um, I found that reasonably daunting. And in a sense, it was, um, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do and I knew how I'd go about it, but, you know, there was no real book. Uh, I was making it up, in a sense, as I was going along. So that five years with Queensland really taught me a lot of things about myself and a lot, taught me a lot of things about coaching. So when I faced that Australian... Room, yes, it was. Um, it was a uh, a moment that I I still can see. It was uh, a hotel room um, in the old Key West, just opposite the Botanic Gardens. Um, three days, or no, maybe four days out from our first Test match against Pakistan in Brisbane, and um, I really didn't know too many of the players there. I knew of them and I had coached against them, but. Uh, hadn't really spent any time with them so my initial sort of talk was around uh, what i would be bringing to the group Uh, Mm. they could only take that on face value but of course as i said one of the, the fortunate things was that at least i had some coaching success and coaching credentials behind me with Queensland, so that gave me some credibility to start with um and i said what i expected from them in terms of um That's values, behaviours, work, ethic, and so on. And then that's when I said, you know, we're all going on this journey to Everest together. And uh, I tried to link then the the concept of Everest to something that was, uh, I thought, quite meaningful um, in terms of cricket and in terms of the people that were in the room. But it was about uh, saying that Everest would probably be something like a label that we would be accorded By the time we finish because we've done something special and therefore I hark back to one of the Australian legendary teams, the Invincibles of 1948 and said, well, Mm. what they achieved was incredible and and, and not that we should be compared with them. But what we should do is leave this, this footprint in Australian cricket, world cricket and hopefully world sport that would give us a label at some point in the future.
0: Yeah. So did you intentionally name it Everest?
1: I did. I did because, uh, you know, Everest, uh, again, in my mind, um,
0: and uh,
1: it was something that I I guess I always in, try to infuse is we're talking individually or in small groups or as a team. I mean, Everest is a bit the top of the world. It's, it's the pinnacle, yeah. um, and that's where every athlete wants to be. That's where every team wants to be. They want to occupy the, that number one spot and hold it for as long as possible. Um, and so that's, uh, in a sense, uh, visually impactful. But then how do you do that? And then how you do that is obviously around teamwork. It's around determination. It's around patience. It's around resilience. It's, uh, it's around risk. And, and of course no guarantees because you can put all that into place and then forces outside of your control can work against you to preclude you from reaching Everest. You know? So, but nonetheless without the preparation, without the proper planning, there's little chance that you'll ever get there.
0: Yeah. Just from everything we've spoken about so far in the interview, you know, it it seems that you do steer towards creating a vision for yourself and your team. Is that something that was big back then and still continues to be today?
1: I think so. I think that's, uh, from a team perspective, uh, that's essential. You've got to know where you want to be um, so that you can work out, well, this is where we are now, so... Now we can map out a game plan to move in that direction. Um, and in my, I guess, when I look in my own uh, philosophy, vision has always been there. It's, as I said, it's it's about dreaming, and, and I've always probably dreamt dreamt too much. If you ask my wife, she's she's uh, constantly wondering <laughs> why I was taking her in all these different directions. It was just that, um, you know, it I'd, I'd be involved in in some capacity of work or or life. And um, as I said, it wasn't necessarily a shelf life, but I felt I'd exhausted it. Um, I'd exhausted my capacity to influence the people and change the lives of people that I was working with. And therefore, it seemed important then to work out, well, where's the next dream? And um, how can I then go into this notion of helping people and creating dreams for them and trying to take them to a place where they haven't been before? So vision's always been... uh, critical in my mind uh, for either a team or a leader or, or an individual to have this picture about what it is he, she, they wish to be.
0: John, just talking about shelf life again, in terms of different roles, is there different values that we can put on different shelf lifes for different roles?
1: Um, oh, yes, I do so. Um, but again, um, I, I guess when I talk about vision, I'm... I'm now aspiring to be the, the top. So if I'm talking about team, I'm trying trying to talk about being the market leader. Uh, if I'm talking about a leader uh, of a team, then it's about uh, creating a legacy and leaving a legacy for the group that you're with. And as an individual, it's about PV. It's about your personal best. What is that? You know, and how do you do that? So while, um, shelf life may not necessarily apply uh, to a moment in time, I think it it can apply to everybody if they're prepared to take that journey uh, into the future because, in a sense, if you accept that where I am now is about where I'm going to finish, um, then in my mind, I don't think either individually or collectively as a team or as a leader, um, you're necessarily challenging yourself the way that I guess I I view things. And therefore, for me, if somebody if I hear that in either somebody or some team, then it's a wonderful opportunity to say it's time to move on. Now we've got to work out where we're going and then we've got to work out how to get there. So in other words, I'm trying to move them off that shelf if they're prepared to go that way. You know, obviously individuals want to wanna to make a choice. Sometimes I'm quite happy here and I don't want to move. And fair enough, that's a choice you make, but there are consequences of doing that. And, of course, there are consequences if you want to move off that shelf and move somewhere else as well
0: with, again, as I
1: said, no guarantees. And that's all often a, a bit of a scary choice for some people.
0: Would going back to professional sports ever interest you again, JB?
1: Um, yeah, look, it does. It, it does every moment of every day. Um, you know, when I look at any sport or any sports person, and I guess particularly the sports that I'm aware of, um, you know, just uh, the thrill of being involved in putting something together and, and trying to achieve something is is just one of the great uh, parts of, of coaching. But if I went back to those three questions that I had in, in my time with the board, yes, I think I probably could create a vision uh, and, a, and a direction for a group of people that would be pretty inspiring and hopefully, um you know, could drag people in that direction if they needed dragging. But I think what, uh, I would be lacking these days now would be just the huge amount of energy that's required to do that. Uh, I just don't think I'd, I'd have in my own mind the, the capacity, the tank full to just keep delivering day in, day out for, you know, weeks possibly years on end. And so what that would do would be impact my relationship with the players and support staff and people around. So in other words, I would um, really threaten uh, the respect that maybe I might have been given because I would come into that team and and because of my previous history, there would be respect of that. But in the end, you've got to deliver. And so I think I wouldn't be able to deliver. Therefore, I wouldn't be able to gain respect and, therefore, Uh, I would never like to be in that situation. So, um, I I currently mentor um, some AFL coaches. Uh, That's part of what I do, and um, you know, I I really enjoy working with young coaches on on the way up, and uh, who are again dreaming of being a head coach in in uh, in AFL. And that's an incredibly uh, difficult life, but uh, nonetheless, they have the passion for coaching and the desire to to take on a head coach role. So. Love being around them, uh, and occasionally that, uh, gets me involved, you know, within a team environment. And, but yeah. I'm, I'm not there as a, as a, a coach. I'm just there almost as a fly on the wall. And, uh, I must say it, it's just a great thrill to be there, but, um, to be there, yeah, as I say, hour in, hour out, day in, day out, just don't think I've got that, uh, that resilience anymore.
0: Yeah. JV, why do you think that sometimes Great, great players don't transition into great coaches. And then you see average to good players transition into very good coaches.
1: Look, um, I think it really comes back to, as I say, when I look at Everest and and part of the, the base camp for Everest for an individual is to look back on your personal best day. So take you, for instance. You know, if today was uh what you might term a personal best, you just think, when I look back on today, that, that was the best day I've ever had. Great. Now, how did that happen? It, it didn't happen by chance. You did a lot of things to create that day and make that day happen. And so what happens with um, some very, very good elite athletes is that it's all come way too naturally for them. Um, they almost go into automatic pilot without having to really think at all about what it is that they do to allow themselves to perform as well as they do. And, you know, because they almost go into that automatic pilot, they, as I say, they don't reflect and therefore it's very hard for them to stop and try and break their game down and break down what is performance irrespective of me, but what is performance of other people and, and around them? And uh, I think that's part of the issue that they have. I think a second part of the issue that some might have is that because they are so good, then there is almost an intolerance and an impatience with with the people that they're coaching as to why can't you understand or come to grips with or deliver on the skills That are required for you to perform in your role, uh, in this situation. Uh, so there's a, there's a disconnect, I think, between their brilliance, uh, which was delivered almost automatically and the people who are seeking that brilliance, but cannot understand how it was produced by this Great player, and the great player can't actually tap into how it was achieved, and then present that in a way that makes sense to the person who's who's chasing that knowledge. Uh, on the other hand, um, well, someone like myself who who played one very unsuccessful first class season for Queensland, um, and then and then went off and did other things. You know, I did lots of other things, because that dream had gone, that dream had burst, you know, so it was now time to, I was going to be a, a sports administrator, a very successful sports administrator, then I was going to be um, a lecturer, a professor in probably sport, and then I was going to be um, possibly a DG in the public service and uh, work my way up through there. Um, and all along, and then we had five children, you know, so toughest coaching job of all is... is, is your own children because there's such an emotional involvement there. Um, so all those experiences and, and right from the time that I was a child um, enabled me to look at what made me tick and that, that was really, uh, I think, the breakthrough moment for me was applying for that Queensland job because it firstly uh, made me stop and think that what I've been doing for a heck of a lot of my life, uh, work life. Uh, was that I coached? You know, I, I tried to help people in small teams or students or whoever it might be to be better than what they were, and uh, and I really enjoyed trying to do that. Um, and I think if you ask any coach, um, whether they be a volunteer coach or a professional elite coach, I think one of the things that they will all say is they were or felt privileged that they had the opportunity. To see the development of one of their athletes, and helping the development of hopefully all of their athletes, but some you would see more than others. So it's just something that you're always trying to give as a coach. Um, so um, going to that Queensland job, as I said, I mean what it, it, it enabled me to do was actually sit down and work out how I coached, um, and uh, and so to me that gave well. Two things. One is this extensive background away from cricket. So when I had that halcyon um, year for Queensland, um, 16 years on, then I'm appointed coach for Queensland. So there's a lot of water that float under the bridge between playing and then coaching. And, and albeit that I stayed in touch a little bit and, uh, and so on, and I've gone back to my old club two years before or three years before, taking on the Queensland job and coached there. Um, but nonetheless... Uh, it was mainly a time away from the game, learning other uh, skills, uh, dealing with a whole range of different people in different situations, and then being able to actually crystallise that into understanding me. And therefore, if I could understand me, I believe then I could uh, develop a relationship with people that I needed to coach, you know, in the sporting environment. And um, yeah, it's it seems to work.
0: Yeah, that interview process for the getting into the Queensland, or taking control of the Queensland team, what was the interview process like, and were you confident when you went through it? Um,
1: I was. In the end, I was confident in myself. Um, so when I went for the Queensland job, which was um, in May '94, Jeff Thompson was the coach. He'd been uh, coach for uh, uh, some four years before that. And maybe some of your audience don't know who. Who he is or who he was. No, but he uh, yeah. you, you, You've got it. But uh, anyway, a famous Australian a you know, legend. And uh, and, he, and the Queensland team had done quite well at, at different stages under his tenure, but still hadn't won the Sheffield Shield. In fact, Queensland still mm-hmm. hadn't won a Sheffield Shield for 69 years of trying. So I went to the interview panel. As I said, I it was important that I understood who I was and what I was going to bring to the table because I couldn't compete on cricket pedigree. Uh, everybody else that was being interviewed had either played long time for Queensland or played for Australia. Uh, so there was no, no way that I was competing uh, on that background. I was competing on what I was bringing to the table in terms of myself, my coaching beliefs, my coaching values, and my coaching methodology. Uh, and so that's what I, that's what I presented to them. And going back to vision again, I mean, of course, one of the first questions that was asked of me was, uh, well, how are you going to win us the Holy Grail? How are you going to win the Sheffield Shield? We've not won it for 69 years. How are you going to win the Sheffield Shield? And I distinctly remember saying to the interview panel, well, if, if that's what you're looking for, then I'm not your man. But uh, my view is that why I'm in the role or why I should be chosen for the role is that I'll create um, – system and process in and around the team that will enable Queensland to dominate the domestic competition, the Sheffield Shield competition and the one-day competition for the next 10 years. And somewhere in there, we'll end up winning a Sheffield Shield. But first things first, we've got to get the system and process right um, and, uh, and measure how we're going and do a whole range of things. And then somewhere we'll win the Shield, but it's not about the Shield. It's very much about system and process first. So uh, that's how the interview um, sort of went. And I explained how that was going to occur. And, um, yep, somebody was listening, obviously, or a couple of people listening uh, who had the casting votes, and I, and I got the job.
0: JP, how important is innovation? I spoke to Bradley Clyde last Friday, actually, and he was, just came on the show. And he was speaking about when Canberra had their dynasty through the late 80s into the 90s, it had to do with Tim Sheen's being always innovative, trying new things and being ahead of the time. Was that something similar to what you did with the Queensland Bulls and then into the Australian team?
1: Yes, look, I think um, innovation's a mindset, really. Um, so it means when you look at something, you always understand it can be done in a different way or a better way, but certainly um, it needs to be sort of pulled apart and, and re-examined Experimented with and see what you come out with. Now that can be very, very frustrating for everybody concerned. Um, if it takes a long time or in the end you don't come up with anything, uh, too outstandingly new, but there's a process to go through. And I suppose with the Queensland team, that was one of the things that we started off in the first place uh, in 90, in 95, in 94, uh, was that I believed, um, that, you know, in, in a group of individuals, and in this case a career there's incredible knowledge, experience, intuition, and so on, you know, as we said, from the boarders and the heerleys and right through to the young players that were part of the mix. So that's an incredible resource that you never want to take for granted or, or never lose. However, if we wanted to actually uh, fine tune that knowledge um, and experience, if we wanted to provide far better feedback for each individual, and if we wanted to be ahead of the game in terms of analysis, then it seemed that this thing called computer technology had to play a role. Now, I didn't know much about computers at all, and still don't, of course, um, but um, it just seemed to me we could make the game far more precise. And so on my um, uh, coaching staff, uh, Jim Hunter, his brother was a, a Microsoft programmer, Mm. Uh, and, uh, and together the three of us began to create how we could capture, uh, information as well as vision so that it was useful for the coach and then the player. And so we just experimented with that through the whole season and, and indeed, uh, they created their own business out of that eventually. Very successful business called Fair Play uh which is, is uh probably more than an analytics tool these sports analytics tool these days far far more than that. But that's where it started. But um all that was saying to me was as I said an innovation mindset that um, when we look at things uh they could be done better. So we changed uh, personnel, we change training routines, we change times, we change the address, uh, you know, and that was always sort of front of mind uh, by the time we got to the Australian team, you know, we had had them juggling, um, you know, with ball on bat um, on the basis that, you know, it, it's a bit like any artist, um, you become one with your the instrument that you use. And so it seemed to me that as batters, the more that they became one with the, the bat, then maybe they could do something special when they're out in the middle now. Whether there's any science to that or not, not sure. It's certainly the, uh, the cause of great mirth uh, amongst the group uh, when we're actually trying to do all this. So if nothing else, there can be sometimes a spin-off benefit around team culture and uh, team harmony and so on. But certainly innovation uh, is a mindset and therefore uh, I think the coach needs to embrace it. And as I said, for me part of my philosophy was about never being satisfied which I suppose you could say well maybe that was innovation for me it was just looking at everything
0: and thinking it could be done better guys we hope you're enjoying the episode with John Buchanan if you haven't yet please check out plenty of other episodes our latest two episodes will be Bradley Clyde and Andrew Eddinghausen and ahead we've got one with Damien Fleming and here's a quick little sneak peek from the episode ahead with Damien
2: and the night before, we'd come up with a plan. Because Lance Kluzner was such a dangerous batsman, he was on strike, we decided to bowl wide Yorkers outside of Stump, which mm. they do a lot now, but at that stage, that was quite radical. And, and for me, to be fair, they come up with the night before the game. They didn't actually... We didn't get two days to practice them. And yeah. a couple of hours before, I actually Yorked him three times from around the wicket, cramping him. And then I just remember thinking, if I get hit through for four through the leg side here, I'm going to get such a rocket so I tried the wide Yorker, didn't quite get it right, at, he got a thick edge for four oh, yeah. so in hindsight I reckon the the Yorkers um, angling in were probably the best option so ran in, released it and it wasn't a bad Yorker actually, you know, just outside of stump and, and he smashed it for four like, I, I don't think a ball has been hit that hard ever in the history it of the game and, yeah, I remember it, yeah and they got, and you've got to remember, in England, their short boundaries, quick outfields, the white juke balls retained their hardness and didn't go reverse. You know, with the white cooker bar, it, it was great ball at death. They got soft and they swung, right? So it, they are awesome to bowl with. So, so all of a sudden, you, you, you lost a few weapons from your armory, as in softball and reverse and big outfields. So now it's five balls, uh, five runs to win a five balls one wicket. Steve Waugh goes, "You're right," and I'm said, "I'm getting there, skipper." And I release the second ball. Good line, it's a half volley. He belts it for four. Like absolutely doubles the speed on this one, and it's a tie. And I can sense everyone's heads dropping down. And I have a bit of fun with it um, in in uh, in corporate speaking gigs, but I do in a serious mode. Um, I just had this voice that just said. You have to bowl him
0: out now. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe via iTunes. Leave me a five-star review if you want to get in touch with me. best way is Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. But for now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, in terms of never being satisfied... How did you celebrate your achievements? Did you reflect on them, or did you kind of like? Sometimes I feel that I sometimes pass over some of the things that I achieve, and I'm already racing on to the next one. How was that for
1: you? Yes, that's a very good point. Um, and I suppose one of the benefits of working in a in a group situation and, and in a sporting group situation is that there are defined periods. So. With cricket, you know, you might play a four-day game, you might play a five-day game, you might play a one-day series. So there's defined points where something starts and something ends. And we made it very clear that we would celebrate success uh, because it's so important to recognise what you've done to get yourself into that position um, as a group and then individuals get the opportunity to talk to other individuals in that situation. And, of course, there are... And it's not just players, it's all the support staff around that. And sometimes there are other players uh, who have made some contribution who can't be there, and so it's about recognising them as well. So uh, it's a very, very important point that we should try and stop and celebrate successes wherever possible, individually and collectively, and do that before racing along to the next moment. So in business, um, you know, the... The fact of corporate life is that it's competition every day. Sport has this luxury of preparation time. So, you know, there's been a weekend that we've just completed and uh, teams have won and lost, drawn maybe, Um, and now they're in that post-game reflection stage and we'll try and get off that as reasonably quickly as they possibly can so that they can set up for the game coming the following weekend, but but that's a luxury. That's the ability to, to sort of take stuff out of one encounter, one piece of competition that may or may not be useful, and then put it into the game plan for the next competition coming up. Business competition every day, and so a lot of a lot of us do, as you just said, just roll from almost day to day. You know, got through the day, thank goodness. Right. Take a deep breath, um, you know. Have a glass of water, or or a vino, or whatever it might be. A bit of food. Catch up with the family. Try and turn off altogether, and then clock in the next day. Interestingly, on this point, um, I'm doing some work in a uh, a mining company called uh, Bogabri Coal, which is an exciting uh, venture. Naturally enough, uh, just around Bogabri. Um and, uh, some of the, uh, senior leaders there, they, they live about 40 minutes away from Boggabri and drive in every morning. And, and almost all of them to a T know the lights and the time. You know, some say it takes me 42 minutes, but if I get the red light, it's going to take me 43 minutes, you know, so. um but what they do say is that for the first 20 minutes or so that they hit that drive, it's about leaving home. You know, it's about thinking about home and whatever, and, and gradually putting that uh, in one compartment and then opening up the work compartment. And so, for the next 20 minutes, uh, they're getting themselves ready for the day. They're preparing and planning for the day. And then, of course, they do the reverse on the way home. Uh, so, you know, when I finish at 7 o'clock at night or whatever the time might be, the first 20 minutes of that drive is reflecting on the day, what's gone right, what hasn't gone right, what should I think about in setting up tomorrow, you know, and I think that's a, and and another interesting example and just um, ways and means for people to do it, um, I talk to some office people and some office people say, look, what I do is, is um, I walk into the building and, and almost, by the t- when I open up the door to walk into the building and I get into the lift then I'm working through what the day begins to look like and vice versa when I come down out of the lift I'm leaving the day and once I walk through the door I've left the day behind and now I'm focusing on, on home. so so it's so important I think for in you know people in work life uh, to make sure that they do have that reflection time and it can can take thirty seconds, it can take a minute, or it can take as long or as little as you need, but you do need that reflection about what was the day like, and then it does need to set up for the next day. And then of course leaders in the corporate need to do the same thing for the teams. And that could be as a you know, a team huddle. That's a five minute job maybe or ten minutes. Pence, you know, everybody can vary that whatever they need and we've got enough technology now and around to bring people in from remote areas. So it's so important to set up a day and then be able to reflect on How did that
0: day go? Yeah. John, what strategies do you have for when the team or business is doing quite well, Mm -hmm. but you've got individuals that aren't either buying into your strategy or just aren't performing?
1: Yeah. Look, um, I think in any business and certainly in any sporting team, um, hopefully, uh, you know, you've kind of got the right people in the mix and the right people doesn't mean they all like you. Um, the right people means a whole range of diverse skills and abilities and, and mix all that together and you get a pretty uh, potent sort of cocktail. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that can give you an opportunity to achieve something, you know, as we've said before, pretty special. Uh, but, of course, um, in the course of of that uh, cocktail being mixed together and, and meeting uh, competition head on, there will be some people who are going to perform exceptionally well. And, uh, and there'll be some who, uh, perform a little bit below going back to this notion of PB day or, or what's expected of them. And then there will always be people who just don't perform for whatever, for whatever reason. And, um, and so what the coach's role, the leader's role is to make sure that they're tapped into all of those, uh, three groups, if you like, rather than just spending all your time with the people who are under. Or, or, and 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 let me defi- let me be clear on the difference. Performance and results. Results is obviously um, what you see on a scoreboard. Um, you know the end product. Or you know you might complete a project. Or you might have to do. Uh, if you're a salesperson, maybe you've got to do uh, uh, 20 uh, hot uh, phone calls today. You know, so that's that's the end target. That's the result that I've got to achieve. But what. Performance is all about is how well did I, how well am I doing that? You know, what what gives me best chance when I make those twenty phone calls to get not only the number up but hopefully some conversions or some follow-ups or some referrals or some leads, whatever it might be. You know, so so I need to do this other other work. So again, from the coach's point of view, it's about actually understanding each of those individuals and realizing well maybe those who underperform could have been. Uh, some bad luck uh, could have been some other factors outside their control. Could have been that yes, they enable, or <clears throat> they allow themselves to be distracted at certain times. Um, in other words, they just didn't deliver on uh, the skills that they needed uh, to give themselves a chance. And then the others, still the same thing. Great day today. Celebrate that success. Really uh, give them a pat on the back. Um, but even in a great day, there are things that they they know if they are. Ob- if they're objective enough, uh, that they could improve on. And so, therefore, going back to this notion of of the individual and their PB day and understanding what makes it up, that's critical. As I said, that's your base camp because the more that an individual knows that and the more that other people in the team knows that and the more that uh, their leader knows that, then you really develop this uh, incredible coaching culture because it just doesn't rely on one person. Everybody can help everyone else.
0: Yeah. Two leaders want to talk to you about, John. Obviously, in your, your time, as we've said, it's very, very successful. We had Steve Wall and you had Ricky Ponting. Just off the top of your head, maybe just a couple of key points, what do you think the biggest leadership trait from each of those two guys were?
1: Mm. Look, um, both in- incredibly passionate to play for Australia. You know, like In a sense, it didn't matter whether they were a captain or not. Initially, anyway, they just loved playing for Australia, so, um, but once made captain, they saw clearly their role is to really lead by example in everything that they did. Now, they didn't always make um, good good decisions or the right decisions, but in the main, they tried to make the right decisions by the team. Um, so leading by example. Stephen did it um, in a slightly different manner. Uh, Stephen was uh, fairly concise uh, with his words, um, but impactful with his words. So if he spoke, people stood up and heard and listened. Um, he um, was a man of history, uh, so that when I talked about Vision and Everest, Stephen talked about the road less travelled. And so for him, it was, again, leaving that mark in history um, as the captain of a very, very successful team. Uh, Ricky, on the other hand, still... Uh, as I said, uh, led by example, history and so on, um, but was not a person to rush, or not necessarily rush, but not a person necessarily to make a decision on his own. And I'm not necessarily saying Stephen did that him as well, but but Ricky would have been the person who spent a lot of time just going around to everybody and canvassing their thoughts. Now, he would have a pretty pretty good idea what he wanted to do, um, but there was always the opportunity that somebody might have something better to say or it gave him the opportunity to really uh, convince people why they should follow his idea. So, um, and, and look, to give you um, uh, two stories, uh, one on each um, to illustrate what I'm saying, um, 2001 was my first tour to England with an uh, Ashes team and Stephen was captain and he was injured in um, the third test match basically out for the rest of the series Um, and uh, but again cutting a long story short got himself to a point where on the morning of the fifth Test match he declared declared himself fit to play now this was a torn calf muscle Um, he probably still needed another two weeks of healing but he declared himself fit to play so in effect he was probably 80 percent physically right but we relied on individuals to make some of those decisions themselves, unless it was pretty obvious that, uh, they weren't going to be physically capable. So, uh, he declared himself fit, uh, and went out and batted. And, uh, at, a, at around about probably 70 or 80, might even be less, he was starting to hobble up and down the wicket. You know, it was obvious that it was hurting. Um, and there's one, one classic, from, this was at the Overland, uh, in, in London want one classic photo of him sort of diving uh, to make his 100. And I reckon he dived from about halfway because he couldn't run any further, so he decided he'd dive and slide and, and made his crease and got his 100. And so we'd be then sending out messages to say, we'll get you a runner, um, you know, just, you know, you're obviously in pain. And he would refuse the runner. He will back to wow. the end, which he did. So he was 150-odd not out at the end. And so he comes in, and he said, great, fantastic job. Uh, you know, you've done what you need to do. Now, put your feet up and, um, you know, we'll replace you on on the field because you just can't get around. He said, no, I'm not. I'll I'll see the innings out or see the the two innings out. And that's what he did. Um, And so his message was both an internal and external message. Uh, And the internal, similar messages, but, you know, if, if you put on a baggy green, um, you're a tough nut and that was what was expected of you. Um, you were hard to be. Um, you were resilient um, and uh you were basically passionate about your country. All those sort of things. And that was just quite messy. Ridiculing similar sort of thing. Again, strangely enough it was uh against the Poms out here in two thousand and six, seven. Only, re- only remembering the series that we won, of course. Mind you, we won most. <laughs> um, but um, it was a second test in Adelaide, and England had made a big score, 550 thereabouts. And uh, going into the morning of the third day, we were maybe um, one or two down. can't quite recall the numbers at the stage. Ricky said, right at that moment, he said, look, today... Uh, all the batters have got to stand up because um, you know if we want to uh, win this match, which um, some of us believe we still could, uh, we've got to make some runs. We've got to get. Uh, we have not only got to occupy the crease; we've got to make runs. So, uh, two thirds of the way through the day, here's an angry Ricky Ponting just walking off the field, being dismissed, and uh, comes up through the crowd. And, um, yeah, just extremely angry and who uh, probably couldn't mistake his anger, no matter where he sat in the ground. Um, yet, uh, what had he done? He'd made 142, I think it was, off about 235 deliveries. Yet he believed he'd let the team down uh, wow. because he, he hadn't done what he said he was going to do, which was off the crew. So in his mind, he was looking at 250. Um, so to just sort of illustrate, both people and what was at the core of their being, certainly as a leader, was you know just just a real toughness but lead by example. Mm.
0: JB, was there ever a player that maybe didn't have the profile of a Shane Warne or a Glenn McGrath or even a Ricky Ponting or Steve Waugh in either your Red, you know, sorry, your Queensland team or your Australian team that despite not having the profile, you just needed to have him in there because they just brought something to the team to gel everyone together?
1: Oh, yes. And and look, it didn't have to be a player either. um, uh, Generally, my assistant coaches I really found very good at being those sorts of people. Um, They were great connectors of the group. They had great values um, and delivered those with their actions and behaviours. So, for instance, uh, uh, Tim Nielsen, who went on to to, uh, coach Australia, um, I saw him as just a great connector of, of people within the team and his work ethic was incredible, his knowledge of cricket was incredible, uh, his desire to learn new things uh, was amazing and uh yet, you know, he just bounce up every day and, and be ready and, and excited to be there every day. Um so you know, um oh, I suppose when you talk of that I, I do think of a young player like Andrew Simons, who was a young guy in the the Queensland side when I first started there and uh, one of Andrew's drinks was he was never a formal leader, he was never in our senior leadership teams, um, not, not that I necessarily had too many senior leadership teams but if there was one uh, or we needed some sort of senior leadership advice, he was probably never in that mix yet he was one of the best form- informal leaders in the whole group and again he did that uh, by his sincerity. Uh, his honesty, um, his uh, willingness to challenge anybody, no matter who it was, coach, Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, Steve Waugh, whoever it was, if he believed they weren't doing the right thing, either by the team or by himself. Um, and he didn't mince words, you know. But if he was doing the wrong thing, he would accept any consequence that came his way, uh, for him not doing that. So, and, but of course his, his persona grew uh, quite substantially as, as he became uh, far, far more um, established in the Australian side. But initially, and, and, and through a long period of time, people like him were really important inside the group.
0: All right, JB, we've been speaking for about 54 minutes. So what I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna move to a couple of cheeky little personality ones just to wrap us up. <coughs> First one I've got is, obviously, your home ground was the Gabba. So apart from the Gabba, what was your favourite ground inside of Australia and internationally?
1: Love them all, but I'll I'll say Adelaide, um, because that was the days of the trees and beautiful career ground. And overseas, again, I would say them all, because they've all got their own characteristics, but I did have the fortune, as I said, coaching at Middlesex, and and Lords is just something incredibly special.
0: Wow, i have to get over there for sure. All right, next one. JB, do you have a morning or a nightly routine that you have to do every day?
1: Morning routine. Um, I generally feel that I'm uh, a little bit sharper in the morning than I am in the afternoon. So uh, it's uh, it's up, um, make the cup of tea and the hot lemon juice, and uh, then down onto the computer to clear off uh, some emails and set up the day. Um, and uh, And then let's see where it goes after that.
0: <laughs> All right, JB. I'm going to take you back to your childhood. Now, on your childhood bedroom wall, what posters did you have hanging up? Ooh, Jeff.
1: Well, I think none, because I don't think my parents actually let me put anything on the uh, on the walls.
0: <laughs> All right, I'm going to take you back to the present now. Now, this is my dinner party question. You've got five invites to a private dinner party. Now, the only rules: no family or friends. But you can invite anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to invite?
1: Mm, Yeah, that's always a pretty interesting one, isn't it? Well, I think uh, there's there has to be somebody religious in there, so it's either Mother Teresa or Jesus Christ. um, And uh, given spiritual? mm, No, uh, I, I do have my own beliefs, I suppose. Uh, My wife, is; um, she really looks after the family in that way and uh, cares for them that way. Mm. Um, But, uh, you know, I grew up in a Christian school um, and, uh, yeah, I suppose by the time I got to university, it was, uh, um, yeah, one of those things that had to be challenged. So I'm still challenging it. Um, Then, uh, you know, there has to be, I think, a man of, of science somewhere, so that's a, you know, a Da Vinci or, you know, somebody that's, that's created stuff that, you know, hasn't been done before. So that possibly brings into the mix in someone like a Stephen Jobs as well, um, that have possibly changed the world in, in uh, what they've done and, and how they've thought, and how they've gone about things. Um, there has to be somebody from I would have thought the world of entertainment, and uh, well, um, I probably grew up in the Beatles era, so um, it's uh, John Lennon with Yoko uh, Ono sitting on his lap, or vice versa. Um, and then, and then from the world of sport, you know, um, again, a, a, an incredible person in the world of sport and. Uh, who would that be? I mean, it's um, yes, so many to pick from. But um, you know, again, it's it's about it's about history and context. And so maybe it's a Jesse Owens um, and uh, or a Muhammad Ali. You know, in the times that they competed and, and uh, where the world was and and uh, you know the the colour of their skin and and how that was impacting upon the world at the time, yet they were still so unbelievably good at what they did.
0: Yeah, JB, do you struggle to watch cricket now, or also do you struggle to watch the Twenty Twenty compared to you know the more purist sort of five-day, four-day sort of events? Yeah,
1: look, um, I don't think I've uh, since I finished coaching. I don't think I've really been a real good watcher of cricket. I mm. like, like watching my own children if they were playing. but um, because I tend to sit there and analyze it rather than just trying to enjoy it yeah. uh so so to some degree the t20 is, is a beautiful release because there's not that much time to sit there and analyze oh, nice it you know? and quick that's <laughs> <laughs> nice and quick but um but t20 is you know, it is the future of the game it's backyard rebadged and that's that's the way children are going to uh, want to experience sport in the future so it's, it's so important to the game and it's so important that the game understands where it fits, where the one-day game fits, and where test cricket fits, you know. So if they can get all that right, then they, they should be in a pretty healthy position.
0: Mm. All right, John, before I let you go, I want everyone following John Buchanan. He's at www.buchanancoaching.com. On Facebook, he's Buchanan Coaching. Twitter, he's John Buck. YouTube, Buchanan Coaching, and I'll have all that in the show notes as well. And just before you go, the ebook they can just go on to the website and there's a newsletter sign-up, correct, John? That's right, but
1: it's actually Buchanan.international.com. they will find that one.
0: Okay, well, I'll get that all that in the show notes. John Buchanan, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. I really appreciate you sharing your stories, your wisdom, and all your advice here today, bud.
1: Yeah, very much enjoyed it too, TK. Thanks very much for the opportunity.
0: guys we hope you enjoyed the episode with john buchanan if you haven't yet like i said please check out some of the other episodes that we've had on lately we've got a great episodes in store coming up we've got next on the show damien fleming we've also just recorded with shane heel leroy loggins greg chappell and Nikolai Topor stanley so please if you haven't yet subscribe via itunes please leave me a five-star review Copy me online with any posts that you share with your family and friends. I'd love to, you know, hear your feedback or, you know, it's it's great with all the support that's been coming my way. So I really appreciate that and I want to say a big thank you to everyone. If you've got any guest requests, like I said, please send them through. Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. I love bringing you all the different stories. So, yeah, tell me who you want to hear from and what, you know, who and when. So I'll get them on. But until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell and this was Talking with TK.